morning. Thank you. Now I won't do it. All right, we're in Ephesians chapter 6. We continue looking at the uh, putting on the whole armor of God, and we'll uh, uh, pick up this morning looking at what it means to have put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, um, English is a very interesting language. If you've studied the history of English, you know that we get words from a bunch of other different languages. Uh, uh, start out with uh, the Saxon and the Angles come in and the Teutonic uh, influence. That means Germany. You know, G- we have a lot of German-type words in, in the English language. Uh, the Vikings used to invade England all the time, so we have a lot of Scandinavian words. Uh, words like sky and skin are actually originally uh, Viking words. If you want to impress your Viking friends, tell them skin and sky are Viking words. Uh, we get a lot of words from, uh, through the church. Uh, Latin and Greek uh, contribute a lot of words to us. And so a lot of times we have uh, more than wor- one word for the same thing, and we think we have to make a difference between them, but in point of fact, they just mean the same thing. Uh, for instance, the word hide, good Saxon word, and skin, they actually mean the same thing. Uh, you know, I'm going to skin your hide. So that, that's, uh, that's pretty much it. But I'm, I'm, I'm saying that because in English, uh, we have the word righteous and based on the word right. And that is sort of a German uh, kind of word, a Teutonic word that comes uh, into the language, uh, the German one, recht. Uh, uh, and so uh, that's sort of the, the German side of the English, right or righteous. But then we also have a word uh, from Latin that is just or justice, uh, justia. And so um, we have these words justice and we have the word righteousness and we try to figure out what's the difference between justice and righteousness and the answer is one's Latin and one's Teutonic. And that's basically it. They, they, they have the same meaning. And in fact in Latin and in, and in uh, the uh, Proto-Indo-European, they, uh, they have the same meaning. And the meaning of righteousness or justice is to put into alignment, to just put things straight according to a goal or a standard that defines where things ought to be. You're with me on this. So when you you justify, we don't even justify print anymore. The computer does it for us. But those of you remember what justifying, I'm getting so many blank stares over here, that's so much... But uh, what it was is when uh, you, you have the margin and you want the margin to be straight, the text to be straight, that's justifying the text. And sometimes you want the right-hand side to be straight too, and that's called justifying the right-hand margin. Um, and, and that's just to straighten things out, just to put them straight uh, and uh, according to a goal or a standard. Now, when it comes to righteousness or justice, uh, and uh, we're thinking this morning about righteousness, it has to do with being in alignment according to the standard being lined up, straightened out, according to the goal, according to the standard that is set before us. Now, the standard for righteousness for the Christian believer is, of course, the righteousness of God. That's a pretty high standard. Um, and so, naturally, what we try to do is we try to lower it. You know, uh, you know that we're running our upward basketball program right now, and it's taking place over in the gym, CLC. It's taking place in that big building over there you know, with the basketball hoops at either end. Well, when we bought the hoops uh, and the ones hanging from the ceiling, they've got a little switch on them. We can lower them down to six feet and anywhere in between. Isn't that cool? And then we bought the, the, the portable uh, standards um, 
goals uh, for the kids to use, and they have a little lever on them, and you can lower those down to six feet. You know, and sometimes you'll walk into that room, into the gym. Okay, you walk into that room, and uh, uh, you'll see that, that somebody's taken one of the basketball standards, and they've lowered it down to six feet. And every guy in the room, when you walk into a gym with a basketball goal at six feet, what do you do? You'd find a ball and you dunk it because after all, now, first service I said Michael Jordan and that, that uh, LeBron James, uh, Zion Williamson, that, that, that's who you are. You know, you're, you're this really cool guy who can dunk the ball and now I am a man because we lowered the standard. You know, it's just that much easier to get there. And so often when we, when we look at uh, the righteousness of God and we see the righteousness of God, we're tempted to lower that standard because the problem with righteousness is our sin. We really have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We really have all sinned and we are not able to attain to the goodness and the rightness and the justice and, and all the glorious things that God is. We're not able to get there. And so because of our sin, you can't lower the basket enough for us to score a basket. It's just way beyond us. So the problem with righteousness is our sin. And the answer is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was incarnate, the, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life, tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. And so Jesus lived the sinless life so that when he died on the cross, he died a death he did not deserve. We deserve that death because of our unrighteousness. But what we have is that God took the righteousness of Jesus and he takes it off of Jesus and he puts it on us so that we are no longer clothed in the filthy rags of our unrighteousness, but rather now we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And when God looks upon us, he doesn't look upon us with the ugliness of our sin, but he looks upon us with the beauty of Christ surrounding us and clothing us. Amen. Now, when we talk about this, this fact that the righteousness of Christ is given to the believer, uh, the, the word we use for that is the righteousness of Christ is imputed, just a nice word that means assigned, it is assigned to us, it is imputed to us. And our unrighteousness and our guilt and shame is given to Christ and imputed to Christ. And so he bears our shame so that we might live in his righteousness. And so that's God's answer for the problem of our sin. Now that may be what Paul is talking about here when he says breastplate of righteousness. I mean, that, that may be all he's saying is just saying, well, just make sure you're saved. Make sure that you have come to the cross, ask Christ in your heart as Lord and Savior, and the righteousness of Christ placed upon your life so that now you're clothed in his righteousness. And that would make perfect sense, and that, that could be what he's talking about, but it goes past that and beyond that. See, the old Puritans, you remember reading about them when you were allowed to back in school, but the, the old Puritans used to talk about the righteousness that is imputed to us, and that is the sacrificial death of Christ, his righteousness imputed to us. And then they also talked about the righteousness that is imparted to us. That is a righteousness that is given to us. When you believe in Jesus Christ, God sends his Holy Spirit into your life. If you believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God is resident in your life. 
And because the Holy Spirit is present in your life, there's a righteousness in your life that is being manifest now on the basis of the imputed righteousness of Christ. And so it's a righteousness given because the Holy Spirit is given to us. And that impartation of the Spirit imparts a righteousness to us that now we can live out our daily lives and live in action. So um, while sometimes people say, well, is this the imputed righteousness, you know, just to put on the righteousness that is ours, that saves us because of Christ, um, and his righteousness given, imputed to us, or is this imparted righteousness? Now, these, these are things you, you have to do. And so Paul is saying, get, get about the business of, of living a righteous life. And the answer is it's really both. It's really both. Now, don't try the second without the former. Any more than the former has meaning in our lives without the second. I've lost you. You know, in living a life of righteousness, understand it's based on the righteousness of Christ for us. And if you know the righteousness of Christ for us, it needs to result in a life of righteousness lived for him. That's what Paul talked about in in verse 1, chapter 4 book of Ephesians when he said walk in a manner worthy of your calling let what God has done in your life because of the gospel let it work out in your life let it make a difference let it let it be uh, seen in how you live not to earn the grace but because of the grace so this morning we look at the breastplate of righteousness won't spend any time talking about what the uh, uh, breastplate symbolizes uh, if we did, we would have said things like, well, the breastplate covers the vital organs and it covers the heart and the heart is the source of life and so it guarantees your life. But we're not going to say that this morning. Yeah, some of you know, so okay. But uh, we will talk about uh, what it means to have and put on the breastplate of, the righteousness, uh, of righteousness, right? So let's start reading, uh, let's start at verse 14, read through 18, first line in 18. And stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Let's bow together in prayer. And Father, I do pray your Holy Spirit would attend to us now in these next coming moments as we continue to worship you through music and song, that you would be exalted and glorified. As your Spirit opens to us the truth of your word, that we would be available and open and receptive to the transforming work of your Holy Spirit that those things that we have withheld from you in our lives would be given over for the doing of your will. And Father, those places in our lives that we have hidden because we are ashamed of them, that your Holy Spirit in this hour would give us the faith to confess them and to give them over to you entirely, that you would cleanse us and remake us and remold us. Father, we want our lives to magnify your glory, to make you known among the nations. And so let your Holy Spirit work in us and among us this day. I ask it in Jesus' name. I don't know, maybe this happens to you too, but a lot of times I find out that my priorities aren't exactly the priorities of Jesus. Have you ever noticed that? We spend a lot of time, you know, what will I wear? What will I eat? How will I clothe my family, take care of everybody? 
You know, we're, we're just worried and anxious about these things. And we'll do all kinds of nutty things to try and satisfy those anxieties. One of them's commuting. That only got a laugh from the retired guy. Evidently, commuting's not as funny to you as it is to me. But, uh, but we do all kinds of things uh, on these, uh, for these anxieties. And one of the things Jesus said, he said, you don't need to worry about this stuff. God has taken care of all these things. Here's what you need to do. You need to seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. You know, put your life and trust your life into the loving hands of God, and he will care for you. Now, some of you noticed that I didn't quote the whole verse because what Jesus said in full was seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And in one sense, that's to seek the holiness and the perfection of God and to know God in his perfection, but it's also to seek to have that righteousness, that goodness, that perfection uh, manifest in our own lives, to seek that the righteousness of God would be evident in our lives. You know, Jesus spent a good bit of his earthly ministry talking about the meaning of righteousness. When you think about it, he, he spent a lot of times trying to get people to view righteousness not as just something they do to earn favor with God, but something they do as a result of the life-transforming, heart-changing intervention of God's grace and spirit in the lives of, of believers. He was trying to get us to understand what righteousness is really all about. Now, back when Jesus was preaching, there was a whole group of people who were experts in righteousness. They were called the Pharisees. They were professors in righteousness. And I mean that, not just that they were professing their own goodness and professing that they were righteous, but they were teaching what righteousness is. You find the Pharisees all over the ministry of Jesus. Now, the Pharisees had several teachings that were, um, um, that were spot on and attracted them to Christ because Christ is spot on. One of the things the Pharisees believed, they believed in angels. They believed that God had messengers who came and, and did God's bidding. They believed in the providence of God. They believed that God was actually working in the world, working in the lives of people who believed in him. They believed that God provided for us, that he would, that he would actually change the course of things according to his gracious will for those who asked him. They believed in the providence of God. The Sadducees, by the way, uh, they were pretty much fatalists. God had created the world. He set it in motion. That was pretty much it. You can worship God, but nothing much is going to change. It's pretty much predetermined. But the Pharisees believed that God was providential in his dealings with mankind. Pharisees also believed in uh, the full Old Testament scripture. Sadducees believed just in the uh, first five books of Moses. The Pharisees believed that you had to add uh, and, and keep as canonical also the law and the prophets and the writing and that all these were together, basically our Old Testament today, that this was in its entirety the Word of God. They were committed to the Scriptures. In fact, the Pharisees were so committed to the Scriptures that a few hundred years later, their, um, uh, their followers you know, in the development of the, of the movement, uh, started, whenever they uh, copied an Old Testament, and of course you copied it by hand, they would count every letter. And they could tell you how many letters were in each book and in each section, and in the whole Bible. 
And the reason they did that wasn't just because they were bored and didn't have anything to do. But the reason they counted every letter was when they had copied a book, they would go back and count all the letters. And if it had the right number of letters, they were pretty sure they had copied it correctly. If they didn't have the right number of letters, they, they had to start over. They loved the scriptures that much. And so they believed in angels. They believed in the providence of God. They believed in the scriptures. They believed in resurrection. They believed in an afterlife. Sadducees didn't. Sadducees thought, well, pretty much when, when you're done, you're done. And uh, that's about all there is to it. But the Pharisees believed in an afterlife. They believed in a judgment. They believed that how you live today mattered for all eternity. And the Pharisees believed in, shall we say, the righteousness of God in this way. The Pharisees believed that the righteousness and the holiness demanded of the priest in the temple was also demanded and commanded for the average person in the marketplace. In other words, there wasn't a division. Some people would be holy just when you're in church and that would be great and then go on. But rather, everybody was called to the righteousness of God. Whether you were a priest serving in the temple or you were in the marketplace, you were still called to live out the righteousness of God. And now you can understand why Pharisees were attracted to Jesus. Jesus, who was talking about the providential care of God and the presence of God, saying things like, the kingdom of God is at hand, it's in your midst. You can see the evidence of it in the way that I'm working by the power of God. And so the Pharisees were, were drawn to that. They were drawn to Jesus, who talked about the resurrection power, and they were, and they were drawn to Jesus because he talked a lot about righteousness. So the Pharisees loved to come up to Jesus and, and talk about these things. They said, Jesus, let's have a discussion here. Uh, what do I have to do to be saved? What do I have to do to get into the kingdom? That was a Pharisee question. Or ask, you know, what is the greatest commandment? You know, what is it that in order to be righteous, what is the greatest commandment here? That was a Pharisee question. And you, you find Pharisees always surrounding Jesus, surrounding the edges of the crowd or pushing forward to ask their questions or to challenge him. We have this idea that all the Pharisees were sort of mean-spirited hypocrites. In fact, if you look up the word Pharisee in the English dictionary, one of the definitions is hypocrite. And there's, there's reasons for that. We'll see one of them in a moment. But by and large, the Pharisees were intensely interested in living a life of righteousness. And Jesus told people, he said, look, if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the Pharisees, if you don't outdo the Pharisees in righteous living, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. But then to the Pharisees, one point six times in a row, he says to the Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you've got your rules and you've got your definition of righteousness. And isn't it odd that Always, your definition of righteousness lets you do what you want to do naturally anyway, and the rules you impose are only for others to struggle with. He said, you hypocrites, because you profess a righteousness that you can't keep yourself, and you insist that others keep it. See, the Pharisees were students of righteousness, and they craved righteousness, but it was a false righteousness. It was a righteousness that was born out of their religion. It was born out of their ritual. It was born out of their heritage. It was born out of group identity. 
but they had lost sight of the righteousness of God. And so they had a false righteousness to, to the point that Paul, in, in, the, in the letter to the Philippians, he says, well, let, let me read that for you just real quick. This won't take long. Paul says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence, I, I more. I'm circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, I'm, I'm, I'm Jew from birth. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In other words, he's saying, I, I speak Hebrew. I am racially, biologically, religiously, I am one of God's people. I am a Jew. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And then he says this, as to righteousness under the law, righteousness according to what the Pharisees talked about, righteousness according to what people could expect. When you were talking about me, Paul says, and righteousness, blameless. But then he found Jesus Christ. Christ found him. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, the polite term, in order that I may, be, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, and he goes on. In other words, Paul said, I, I came to understand that the righteousness of religion is nothing. It's the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus that is everything. And it went from religion to relationship. See, Paul knew about a false righteousness. And a lot of times we're caught up in living in a, in a, in a kind of false righteousness. That's when Satan comes in. I told you, each piece of, of armor is combating some aspect of the assault of, of Satan. But Satan will come in and he'll try to convince us that when it comes to righteousness, you really don't need to worry about it. You can just pretty much do your own thing. After all, everybody can decide what is righteous for them. I mean, who are you to decide what's righteous for somebody else? So the Satan comes in and he, he says, you know, this, this evil, it's a good thing. This, this good thing, that's really evil. And you get caught up in this confusion. This describes our world. There is no absolute righteousness at all. And so there's no absolute wickedness. There's just preferences. You have choices to make. And that's a false righteousness. And then if Satan can't convince us of that, he'll come and he'll convince us that, well, you know, but there's a self-righteousness. Because after all, you're a pretty good person. You're basically a good person. Most of the time, you're good. And that's true of most people. Bank robbers don't rob banks every day of their life. They rob banks about once every month or two or three months, depending on how much they get per haul. Most of the time, a bank robber is a pretty good person. He only robs a bank every now and then. But all the time, he's a thief. And all the time, that thieving and stealing makes him an unrighteous person. You can feel good about yourself, but your own righteousness is not enough. 
Well, Satan can't get you on that. He'll say, well, uh, but righteousness is relative. After all, you're better than most people, and, and most of us are better than most people. Except for one poor guy who's at the bottom of the rung. Every, the rest of us can always say, I'm better than somebody. Think about it. But you know, it doesn't help to say, I'm relatively better. Relatively good. Jesus talked about that. This, this is in, in Luke. I'll just read it for you real quick. This is in Luke 18, 9. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Sound familiar? Jesus said, two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Meanwhile, the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down justified. That word justified is the same Greek word family as righteous. I tell you, that man went down righteous. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, the righteousness isn't relative to others. It's measured by the righteousness and the goodness of God. Aha, Satan says, now that I've convinced you that righteousness is not your own, it's not relative, it's a real thing, let me tell you, Satan will say, it's impossible. You can't do it. You know, in point of fact, he's right. You know, if we say we have not sinned, we're calling God a liar and we lie to ourselves. By the way, the good news is that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, we can't attain to the standard. That's why it's grace all throughout. That's why we spent time in, in Ephesians 1 through 3 and saw the marvelous work of God's grace appropriated by faith for righteousness, for good works, that the Father would be glorified in them. And so Satan tries to convince us of this false righteousness. But the truth of the matter is, righteousness is imparted to us and given to us by the work of the Holy Spirit of God. It's the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, the Holy Spirit that convicts us, but then moves us to confess so that we might be changed. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us wisdom, gives us the courage of faith to keep pressing on. Because one of the things... Satan will also try about righteousness as he'll say, see, I, I told you you couldn't do it. You're living a life and you're trying to live for Christ. You're trying to glorify the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. You're trying the best you can, and yet sin keeps cropping up. Am I the only one or has this happened to all of us? And it's not just that sin every now and then comes. It's a habitual sin. It's something that we have fought our whole lives and sometimes we have a day of victory and sometimes we have a day when it gets the better of us and Satan's sitting there whispering, he says, see, I told you you couldn't do it, you might as well give up. Let me tell you something, God doesn't give up on us. And you've got to keep rolling and keep moving and keep pressing on. 
Because when Christ died for your sins, he knew about that sin too. And I've told you this before. It's not like Jesus is up in heaven and he's looking down and saying, wow, look at what Wayne did. I had no idea. I left that one out. No. He died for our sins. Not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. You know, we get discouraged about that. Um, Let's see if I can, I, I can illustrate something here. Um, many, 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 many years ago, I used to go to the mall in, in, in downtown and go to the museums. And I would take David along with me. And uh, because he was five years old, I would lecture him. And he would, <laughs> he would just look at me with awestruck amazement. And Well, that's the way I remember it. Okay. And this, this was back before 911. It was back before the, uh, the, the uh, barracks explosion in Lebanon. This was when you could still park underneath the Air and Space Museum. Did you know there's a parking lot underneath the Air and Space Museum? You used to be able to park there. It was great. Nobody knew about it. You'd pull in, park, get on the escalator, zip your way up, and there the airplanes were. It was, it was marvelous. But they closed that down. Okay, anyway. But one time we were, we were down in the mall, and we went to the um, Natural History Museum. And I haven't been back in decades, so I don't know if this exhibit is still there. But there was one exhibit in which they were trying to illustrate how fast cockroaches multiply. Without calculators. And uh, so uh, they had an exhibit. And it was, they, had, they had built a little kitchen that you might find in an apartment. Some of you ever in an apartment with an apartment kitchen? You know, it's just a, a little small counter and a sink, cupboards, and then there's these big French doors that opened up, and behind the French door was a little stove, and, and you could cook on the stove and those kinds of things. Anybody else? Yeah, okay. So you walk in, and you see that exhibit. There's this little apartment kitchen, and it is covered, every inch of it, in roaches. Every inch of it, roaches everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. millions of roaches. Now, here's the thing. That apartment in the museum looked exactly like our apartment when we first got married. (laughs) Right down to the roaches. (laughs) Now, we we didn't have millions of roaches, but um, uh, I don't know why. Debbie had this thing where she didn't like roaches, you know. (laughs) See a roach, pow, you know. You weren't safe if you are a roach around her. And we didn't have millions of roaches. We had occasional roaches. And we tried to get rid of the roaches. And they kept coming back. You know why? It's because of the neighbors. <laughs> you know, some, some of them had cultures where roaches were a delicacy. But <laughs> that, that's the answer. But just because a roach showed up, we didn't say, what's the use? We'll never get a handle on these roaches there's always going to be a roach there somewhere. No matter what we do, some, somehow a roach is going to get in. No, what we did was we killed the roach. We cleaned up the mess. <laughs> and it kept moving on. And that's what we do in the Christian life. Sometimes you can't keep the roaches out. You can't keep them. You know, they're, they're going to sneak in. They're going, to, they're going to surprise you where they are. But you just kill them and move on. And you seek the kingdom of God and you seek his righteousness. And you don't let the lies of Satan discourage you because it's God 
who's at work in us. And so when Satan comes and he wants to talk about you, and say, see, see you're, you're not so great. You're, you see, you're a sinner. I, you believed and you joined the church. You love the Bible. You love Christ. You pray. You love to spend time worshiping. But look at that sin. Look at who you are. Here's what you do. You just tell Satan, why don't you go talk to my heavenly father? Here's why. Sometimes, years ago, when they were smaller, people would come up and tell me or tell Debbie about something the boys had done. <laughs> the preacher's kid, you know what he did? And they tell us something that he had done that was wrong. It was terrible. And I listened to that and I said, yeah, that's wrong, that's terrible. But I didn't tell that person that. Basically, I thought to myself, why don't you mind your own business? I got your back. <laughs> but he's my son. And I don't care what he's done. You don't talk to me about my son that way. You send the devil to your heavenly father because you're a child of God. And he won't let anybody talk about you that way in front of him. And so this morning, you might be living according to a false righteousness. It's something you're, you're trying to do. You think you have to score a perfect score or whatever. No, you have the perfect righteousness that's imputed to us in Christ. And now we're living out the imparted righteousness that is given to us by the Holy Spirit. And we press on. And we press on in the, in the confidence and the boldness because Jesus Christ died for our sins. And he died for every last one of our sins. And when he forgave us, he forgave us completely. And when he made us alive, he made us alive completely. And so in Christ Jesus, we have boldness over sin. We are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit gives us courage and gives us strength and gives us insight. The Holy Spirit pushes us in the direction we need to go. We have the Holy Spirit of God present in our lives. And folks, we are children of the Heavenly Father who holds us in the hollow of his hand. And no one can pluck us out of the hand of God. That's our boldness. Because when we put on the breastplate of righteousness, what we're doing is we're saying, whoever Jesus is, that's who I want to be. My life, live to look like him so that people will see the righteousness of our Heavenly Father in my life as I put on the breastplate of righteousness. Let's bow together. Now, Father in heaven, we pray that what has been words thus far will become life from this place. That what is ideas and feelings here and now will be turned into changed lives and actions. That those things that are summoned up by the presence of, of your Holy Spirit, that we think this morning here in this place, yes, that's what I want. Father, make that our keen desire within us to have your righteousness seen and practiced, made known, that you would be glorified. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.